How persuadable are you? I think most of us think we make complete and logical decisions ourselves and weigh all the consequences, and we're not influenced by marketing campaigns. But I think overwhelmingly, we're more persuadable than we think. There's this Mint study I find fascinating. Some psychologists did this research in restaurants. They found that if the server gave the customer a Mint along with the bill, the amount of tips went up by 3%. Why? Well, it's because the server gave them a small gift. And as a human, when someone gives us something, even as small as a mint, we want to give something back. But check this out. When the server gave two mints with the bill, the tips went up by 14%. But there's more. If the server gave one mint with the bill and then walked away but then stopped and came back and said, you're nice diners, here, take an extra mint. This resulted in tips increasing by 23%. Incredible. Such a small gift given at just the right time with the right message has quite an effect on us. And see, these are the things I don't think we're consciously aware of. I don't know how much I'm going to tip until I get the bill, and then I do this little math game to figure it out. And if at that same time I'm also given a little gift and told something nice, yeah, I think this kind of stuff does work on me, and I don't even realize it. But those are small things. Surely I wouldn't be so easily persuaded to do something bigger, right? Like turn against my company and cause it to have major financial loss. That's quite a big decision to make. But this story is about a guy who persuaded someone to do exactly that. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Recider. This is Darknet Diaries. Support for this show comes from Veronis. Guess how many files the average employee can access on their first day of work? 17 million and most of them they never use. Those files are what these ransomware gangs steal and hold hostage because companies will pay to get that back. That's why ransomware is such a threat. The blast radius is huge, 17 million files? There's so much valuable data that's easy to get and they can make money from. Do you wonder what your company's ransomware blast radius is? Veronis does a free cyber resilience assessment and tells you how many important files a compromised user could steal and whether anything would beep if they did, and a whole lot more. They actually do all the work, show you where the data is open to, if anyone is using it, and what you can do to lock it down before attackers get inside. They also can detect behavior that looks like ransomware and stop it automatically. You can even get a break on your cyber insurance. If you want to learn more, visit varonis.com dark. That's spelled V-A-R. O-N-I-S, veronis.com slash dark. Our story today comes from a character we're going to refer to as Paint Parrot. It's sort of a nickname he goes by. Paint Parrot's a social engineer unlike any I've ever seen. And if you don't know what a social engineer is, it's basically just someone who can persuade other people to do things they don't want to do through different psychological tricks. But his story starts far away in Afghanistan. So I was in, um, I was in a, a part of the British Army called the Royal Artillery, which everyone assumes straight away is going to be to do big guns and things like that. But we were actually um, a UAV unit, so unmanned air vehicles, drones. So we were, we were a drone unit within the Royal Artillery. 
And yeah, our job is obviously to you know find, fix, finish, and kind of build up that intelligence cycle for, for the guys on the ground to then go out and do operations against I don't know like Taliban weapons caches or you know we try and track people planting IEDs in the roads, you know, or um you know trying to find high value targets for special forces guys to go and like knock on the door basically. Paint Parrot said he was only in charge of unarmed drones, no predators launching missiles down on targets. Instead, they're sort of like eyes in the sky and would watch the ground to gather as much intelligence as they could. So yeah, it was a unique and yeah, quite quite exciting role. Yeah, mentally quite taxing because a lot of the time you feel like your hands are tired. You're looking at stuff and yeah, you want to be able to do something, especially when you're seeing yeah friendly troops getting in contact with Taliban. You know, and you want to be able to intervene, but all you can do is watch. You know, it's quite a, it's quite a surreal, surreal time. What he was after was good intel that his team could use to have the upper hand, which I guess is like espionage work, a spy in the sky. But after a while, he completed his duty and left the military, which means he needed to find work as a civilian. At first, he assumed he would just do what a lot of his peers were doing. Originally, I wanted to do what a lot of ex-army guys do and just be a bodyguard. You know, because it could be quite, be quite lucrative contracting in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. So that was kind of the original plan. Um, but while I was sort of doing the training, I, I, I became good friends with, with a guy who ran a training company. And I started out going back with him as an instructor. And then that evolved into me getting, getting involved in some of his projects that he was doing that weren't training. So it's sort of live operations, if you will. And that's kind of how, yeah, kind of slowly sort of filtered me into less, less the sort of bodyguard stuff and more, you know, security and risk assessments and sort of, yeah, following people and gathering evidence for, you know, whether it's sort of just normal sort of lawyer cases, you know, and they need to get information to discredit the other party. Now, that's an interesting transition. Getting intel for lawyers? This is sort of like being a private eye. But he's trying to find dirt on the other side of legal cases. So he was gathering intelligence for companies, lawyers, court cases. For example, this one time, he said there was a copyright infringement case. Yeah, someone had their, they were claiming rights over intellectual property of something of a business or an idea. And in order to try and catch the other party out, we'd organize that they'd have a meeting here in a conference room at a hotel. You know, no lawyers present and just the two guys that were arguing could kind of talk it out and hash it out. All we'd actually done is bugged the room and had our lawyer basically downstairs listening to the audio and kind of baited the other guy into admitting that you know, he'd stolen the intellectual property and kind of bragging that you know, he was going to get away with it. There's a slight sex appeal to corporate intelligence, I guess. You know, it, it, it was kind of like this whole world that you know, I was in the military and things like that. You never really, you see it in the movies. You don't really know that it exists. You learn a lot of like social engineering because you're constantly having to kind of talk your way into places you shouldn't be. You know, you're constantly having to sort of, you know, phone somebody up and fish information out of them. You know, and trying to get them to reveal things that they, they shouldn't do. You know, or pretending to be someone else. He would sometimes travel around, do training sessions, and would teach others how to gather intel like this covertly. After sort of, yeah, getting more and more into it. One trip to the States, I met a, a private intelligence company that was a DOJ contractor. And that's kind of where it all, it all kind of escalated from there and became something else. 
Okay, so this DOJ contractor was an intelligence gathering company, and they wanted to increase their presence in the UK, where Paint Parrot lived. They knew of this London-based company, which was collecting intelligence there, and they introduced Paint Parrot to this small intelligence firm in the UK to see if he could help them out. And this is kind of where I first got introduced into yeah the world of the world of whistleblowing, basically. <laughs> So here's where we get to whistleblowers. In a nutshell, the Department of Justice doesn't like it when corporations break the law. They want to bring these businesses to justice. But it's not so easy for the DOJ to know when something illegal is going on inside a company. So the DOJ gives out monetary rewards to whistleblowers who can provide detailed, first-hand observations of misconduct by a company, which results in a successful enforcement action that returns a significant amount of money to harmed investors. Basically, if someone inside the company comes forward and provides enough evidence that this company was breaking the law and it results in a fine imposed by the SEC, the whistleblower will get a percentage of that fine. But the DOJ can't handle all of this intel being sent at them by themselves. So they contract this work out to companies like this uh, DOJ contractor the Paint Parrot just met. But this London group that he also just met with was in the process of handling one of these whistleblower cases. Now, this case is still ongoing, so we can't discuss specifics, but he can talk a little about it. First, like in any whistleblower case, there's a company that did something wrong. So, brief overview, you know, certain large company was, in order to get a competitive edge, was bribing government officials in exchange for access to oil. They were paying off people. They were shipping you know, cash across borders into other countries in order to pay off government officials in order to get their supply over, you know, other corporations, their competitors. And they were also, in the end, it sort of came out, they were also manufacturing fake shipping manifests, the ships that never left or never existed in order to move what we can only, we, we either assume was large quantities of oil or something, but they were moving it anonymously in order to bolster their, bolster their stock sort of off the record and things like that. So we have a feeling that was then used in um, another couple of com- countries basically in order to, to, to shift the, the balance of whether it be political power or whatever, but they were basically shipping yeah, some oil that wasn't even accounted for. And they were using some of these to ship cash as well that wasn't, you know, sort of off the books, you know, by saying, oh, we paid for this this vessel to leave and this vessel never existed. You know, the manifest is there, it never existed, but they can attribute, you know, millions of dollars to that as cost, you know, and that money then obviously went somewhere else in cash. So this giant multinational corporation was doing a bunch of illegal things, but it wasn't public. So nobody knew they were doing this. Only a few people inside the company were aware that this company was breaking the law. But there was this one guy who worked for this company who was upset with this company. So he was in a certain African country. He, he was their representative, basically. So he had his own business, but he also had business cards with, you know, this commodity company's logo on. And he was like, there in-country representative. He was a contractor rather than actually on their payroll. Okay. But I mean, how did they get connected to your company? um, So how he got approached is, I think he tried to sue the company for money that they owed him 
when when he left. I think that's how it started. He ended up with a grudge against this company. And someone obviously caught wind of it and introduced him to, you know, where I was working, let's say this is before I came along. And was like, look, you didn't get you didn't win the lawsuit. You know, if you know of anything that they've done wrong, because I think he mentioned some of it in a lawsuit and people just kind of took it because you know, he lost the lawsuit and no one took any of it seriously. Um, he then got introduced to, you know, this intelligence firm and they were like, Okay, you know, this you know, if you can prove this, this and this, then it's a whistleblower case. And that's kind of how the how it all kind of started. This guy wasn't interested in being a whistleblower at first. But this UK intelligence firm convinced him that being a whistleblower was the right thing to do and to come forward with this evidence to the DOJ. He agreed to provide them with testimony and the necessary information for the case. But then things got a little crazy. So Paint Parrot gets brought into this UK intelligence firm to take a look at this case. So they have this guy with enough evidence to slap a huge fine on this company. They just need him to come forward with it. But this guy was a bit of a loose cannon. Um, let's just say the situation was complicated and the witness was at risk. Um, predominantly at risk of them of themselves, but they were you know, making threats towards their own family and, and kids and things like this. Their star witness had freaked out. He disappeared from his home in Africa, threatened to kill his wife and family, and cut off all contact with this intelligence company that Paint Parrot was working for. It looked like he had gone to the UK where Paint Parrot was. Oh, and I actually took a look at this guy's Facebook page. He is very strange. He calls himself the old god and goes around blessing people he thinks are merciful. His pictures he posts are pretty odd too. Like some are straight up amateur porn, some with his face painted in a very crude way. And he posts a lot of weird conspiracy theory stuff. So this is what Paint Parrot walked into. As being the new guy at work, this was his first assignment. You know, it's just kind of, can you secure the family? make sure the house is secured and then can you try and track down and find our whistleblower? <laughs> um, I appreciate this doesn't paint this world in a great light because, you know, I'm kind of being brought in on, on what's essentially a fuck up. But of course, you know, it, it sounded interesting. You know, I get told that the, F, you know, the FBI are involved and all this kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm like, okay, but, you know, let's do this. So he begins his search by getting to know the guy's family. He asks them about the target's typical schedule and any favorite places that he tends to go. And they had to do this safely without bringing any harm to him or the guy's family, which means a lot of his intel that he gathered had to be secret. So he begins scouring the internet to try to find information about this guy. Yeah, we're, we're humans, all creatures of habit. You know, let's find out the, the restaurants he likes to go to. Ooh. Places he kind of normally in his daily routine can't do without. You know, if he always buys a bagel from this one food shop, okay, well, let's check that out at the sort of time of day that he would go there. So he's initially just sort of gathering, eliciting information out of his family and sort of other friends and contacts that we kind of got in touch with to try and track him down. And then it was, like I say, started posting a lot of stuff on social media. You know, he's putting pictures on Facebook almost daily. And I'm trying to sort of figure out what's in the background to try and pin down whereabouts he is in, in London. When you take a photo with a digital camera, a bunch of data like the date and time and even GPS location are stored as metadata inside the picture. It used to be that when you uploaded a photo to Facebook, all of that metadata could be downloaded and viewed. Obviously, this raised a lot of privacy concerns. So Facebook and other social media platforms began automatically deleting metadata from uploaded photos. 
So Paint Parrot couldn't just download the photo and look at the metadata and see where it was taken. He had to actually identify things in the background of the photos to try to figure out where these photos were taken and where his target was. So instead of actually having to identify what was in the background of the photos, you know, looking at the time he'd uploaded it and looking at the frequency of when he was uploading pictures, it was all right, okay, that was taken this morning. He uploaded it at that time. A couple of hours later, okay, this picture's a couple of miles away. So we kind of build an idea of what area he's in and then kind of just try and narrow it down and, and sort of close the net, so to speak. So he figured out from the photos this guy was staying in a hotel. And looking at the background landmarks and stuff in the photos, he narrowed his location down to a general part of town that has a few well-known hotels. So now he has to figure out what hotel this guy's staying in Maybe to you and I, that's a little hard. But to Paint Parrot, eh, that's nothing a little social engineering can't figure out. So, you know, the first thing then is let's start calling these hotels. You know, let's pretend, you know, I'm, I'm calling them saying I've got the guy's laundry, you know, calling, oh, um, you know, I work for so-and-so laundry. We just quickly Google the dry cleaning company that's, you know, down the road kind of thing. You know, it's like, oh, I work for so-and-so. Um, we've got clothes here uh he said he was he said he was staying with you guys but we haven't got you know we haven't got the room number um i know he's expecting it today uh is there any chance you can give us a room number we can we can make sure you know we can bring his bring his dry cleaning up to him this afternoon yeah obviously most of them are like no we haven't got a guest by that name blah 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 when we eventually found the right one after about the fourth or fifth attempt someone on the reception let it slip gave us the room number and everything so we're like right cool i know he's staying here i know he's in that room number Excellent. Success. The call worked, and he had the information he needed. So now he's going to go find the target. Once I had the room number, you know, I just walked straight past reception, walked straight upstairs, found the room, you know, and just kind of and where it was corridor-wise, and, you know, just lingered around, I guess, in the right sort of way that, you know, sitting on the, I think it was like a sofa at the end of something, you know, just one of those random bits of hotel furniture, and just kind of hung around there, playing on my phone until a you know, confirms that he was actually staying in that room. So he waited nonchalantly outside the guy's hotel room to make sure it was his room. Yeah, it's not quite a classic spy with the whole eye holes cut out in a newspaper, you know. <laughs> Suddenly, the guy comes out of his room and starts walking to the lobby. Paint Parrot sees him, but he didn't want to confront the whistleblower immediately. Remember, they need this guy on their side if they want to use him against this company. Initially, to try and talk to him and try and bring him back on board. Um, so we know he's there, you know, seeing he's got his phone on him. We've got eyes on him when he's walked out. You know, and I've got like one of, the, you know, one of the bosses at the company to give him a call and try and talk him around. You, know, you can see his phone rings, takes his phone out of his pocket, and see he's ignoring it. You know, it's, it's like, okay, so kind of, no, we're starting to get like a losing, losing the sort of uh, control. So what's your pulse rate in these situations? Like, are you cool and calm or n nervous and sweaty? The amount of times I follow someone or be looking at someone for a camera, you know, and you're like, you, you think, shit, they've seen me. You know, they're looking right at me. And you look at the photos and it looks like they're looking right at you. And you, know, you've, you follow someone for ages. And because they just casually look over their shoulder at some point, you know, even though you're across the street and, you know, a good sort of 30 meters back or something, because they've looked over, they, they, you get that paranoia of instantly thinking they've spotted me, you know. But the more and more I've done it, once you kind of realize that 
everyone else around you is nowhere near as aware as you are because you're in like this heightened state, it almost gives you this feeling of you can go anywhere. You can walk anywhere. And as long as you're confident enough, people are easy. If, if you look like you belong somewhere, people won't question you. It, it's generally that simple. So Paint Parrot continued to track and follow this guy for a while. This went on for like a couple of days, trying to make sort of a soft approach and just try and bring him back in. Once he was quite obviously established, that's not what he wanted to do. And he started posting more and more stuff on social media now in relation to this case. And he actually posted a list of email addresses and names of people at the DOJ in the US. Huh? That's really odd. He's trying to dox the Department of Justice? That makes no sense, because that's not the target organization you want his help on. <laughs> no. <laughs> As I said, this guy completely lost the plot. He, I don't know whether it was a mental breakdown or, or what, um, or whether he's just crazy. But yeah, he kind of, he'd done the same for the company that he was blowing the whistle on as well. So he kind of put his hands up and said, you know, I'm a whistleblower. And he, and he listed you know, names of you know, DOJ names and emails, FBI names and emails, and names and emails of the top people at the company um, that he was blowing the whistle on. At this point, the team decides this guy is no longer worth the risk. So Paint Parrot takes all the information he has, the guy's location, texts, audio recordings of him making threats against his wife and family, and prepares a nice little file to pass along to London law enforcement so they can arrest him. Yeah, we kind of packaged it all in a nice way to sort of present and kind of resolve the situation. They're like, oh my God, yeah, yeah, we've never had anyone do this before. It's absolutely brilliant. The police had enough evidence to bring that guy in and question him. So this means they lost their whistleblower. What do you do with this case now? After the break, we'll find out. Stay with us. Support for this episode comes from Oracle for Startups. I think I have to buy a new phone this week. This one I have is running out of space and it's just too slow for my modern usage. But I wonder if startup companies have this same problem where they start out with some cool new technology to run their business, but over time it starts to slow down and their underlying architecture just can't handle big customers, large spikes, or the growth that they hope to have. How does a startup find technology that can grow with them? Well, Oracle has this startup partnership. It's cleverly called Oracle for Startups. The idea is even though you're a startup, you can tap into the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. You get free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you build this any way you want. Now you aren't frustrated and you've got the power to scale and you're free to go after your dream customers. Don't stay stuck. Go check out oracle.com slash go to slash darknet. The conversation shifted over the course of a few days to, well, now we don't have a witness and we still want this case. And it was like, well, look, you managed to find him and track him down. You know, how would you feel about, let's try and find a new witness or two, you know, for, for this investigation? Now, you might be wondering, why does this UK intelligence firm that Paint Parrot works for even care about finding a whistleblower and bring this case to justice? Well, it's simple. Money. Check this out. When a whistleblower reports a crime to the SEC and the SEC issues fines for that company, the whistleblower will get a cut of the fines collected. 
In fact, the SEC can reward up to 30% of the fines collected back to whoever brought them the evidence that a crime was committed. But that's not always just the whistleblower who brings it forward. A company like the one Paint Parrot works for would outline all the laws broken, compile all the evidence neatly, and handle the whistleblower. Then Paint Parrot's company would deliver it to the DOJ contractor who's based in Washington, D.C., and that company has an in with the DOJ and the SEC to get the attention of the right people to get this moving quickly. So that 30% might be split three ways between the whistleblower, the company Paint Parrot works for, and the DOJ contractor. So that means if a company is fined $500 million, 30% of that is $150 million. So $150 million split three ways. This is why the Intel firm that Paint Parrot worked for wanted this case. This was a huge company committing massive crimes that could result in billions of dollars in fines. And that's just a fascinating business model that this Intel firm was doing. To go seek dirt on a company and then find a whistleblower in that company who can testify that crimes were committed, also this company can get the reward in the end. At this point, they knew what crimes were committed by this company. Now they just needed to find a person on the inside of the company to come forward with the evidence. This group wanted Paint Parrot to approach somebody who's part of the company and convince them to turn into a whistleblower. But they needed to find the right person, someone who's willing to do it, and would have access to the right evidence. While Paint Parrot had done some social engineering and intel gathering in the past, this was totally new territory for him, definitely in the moral gray area. Because the new goal is now to create a whistleblower, to find someone who didn't necessarily think to become a whistleblower, and then convince them to detonate a bombshell allegation against the very company they work for. But Paint Parrot was up for this challenge. He knew they would have to be really smart about the approach if they were going to do this. You know, it's not like you can just knock on the door of a company and you know follow someone out and tap them on the shoulder in the street and go, hey, do you want to come forward and be a whistleblower? You know, that, that kind of doesn't work. You have to you know, cultivate them. So this is what we call like human intelligence, but it's basically you know, social engineering. You know, you've got to build a story that puts you on a like for like with the individual you want to target you know, you've got to very very quickly be memorable to them and be their best friend before you even approach the subject of whistleblowing you know, you've got to have enough things in common and you know, like uh, stupid shit like, like the same movies the same tv shows go on vacation to the same places to the point where you know, they're like, oh my God, you know, I found someone that's into the same stuff as me. Do you want to grab a beer later? You know, and you can then start building on a relationship with them. And how, how, how much experience have you had with something like that before this to get close to a source like that without them knowing who you are? So I've had like a minimal exposure to it, but never done more of a long game like this. What I've done before was a couple of days, you know, just trying to, you know, maybe just trying to bump into someone and get some information out of them in a bar or you know, knocking on a door, pretending to be someone else or getting a job at a, a warehouse to try and find someone that's stealing stock. You know, so never playing the game or playing a role to, to this sort of level. Um, you know, never tried it at this point, but I was like, hey, you know, I've, I've done it for, for smaller stuff. So surely it's just <laughs> do the same thing, but longer, right? <laughs> Paint Parrot and his team began looking for employees of this company to try to find someone who could be a whistleblower. 
Now, if you don't know, you can go on LinkedIn, search for a company, and see thousands of employees that work for that company. And from there, you can try to find people who would be in the position to know what dirt this company has. Because after all, a whistleblower has to testify in court to say that they saw this company commit crimes. So it can't just be anyone who works there. So they slowly start going through individuals of this company, narrowing it down. Then, when they find people who would be in the know, they start scouring their social media profiles, trying to figure out if this person could be persuaded to be a whistleblower. Because you sort of need to find someone with strong morals and ethics who's willing to do the right thing, and is willing to work with the SEC, because at the end of the day, a whistleblower has to decide, what do they care about more? This company they work for, or justice for the crimes that were committed? Eventually, Paint Parrot and his team zeroed in on a person. This guy ticked all the boxes of someone who would know enough to testify, has the morals and ethics to want to do the right thing, was American, so he could be patriotic, and as a bonus, the target was living in the UK right where Paint Parrot was. This was now their target, and their mission is to convince this guy to blow the whistle on the company he worked for. Now that they've identified their target, Paint Parrot got to work learning as much about this guy's life as possible. First of all, it's like, yeah, let's run his, let's use your standard sort of open source intelligence type techniques. Let's try and get as much information as we can. And let's look at his, you know, try and build up who and where his family are. Use Facebook so we can get pictures of his family, first and last names, you know, locations. You know, found out he's from a certain state. Okay, so now we're just looking at people who match them names in that state. And eventually you start whistling down the list to the point where I had his mum's um, landline and mobile phone number, all just through open source intelligence. You know, we're looking at Facebook, Instagram, found he's still got an old MySpace, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we'll kind of build up a picture of this guy's life. You know, where does he go? When does he go on holiday? When does he travel back to the States? Where does he go on holiday? Is it anywhere he goes regularly? This is all pretty basic research. Most of the information they're getting is just from public social media profiles. But he was also looking up things like voter registration databases, real estate listings, and other online resources to fill out their picture. But most of what they're getting is just stuff that's publicly out there already for anyone to find. So here we've, we've managed to get his mobile phone number by this point. We've, we've got a wealth of like information about his daily life from various social media and his wife's social media and stuff like that. Oh yeah, that's a good tip. If the target is not showing much on social media, find their spouse because their spouse might be posting all the info, like where they're traveling, what food they're eating, pictures of themselves. It sometimes can be a much better source of information than the target themselves. We've got historical data of his family and where they currently are living and his relations and how often he generally travels back to the States. So kind of we almost build out what we call a pattern of life on, on the person. And we use that to then start trying to decide how we're going to fit ourselves, like basically how I'm going to slot into this guy's life. And that's the question, right? With all this information, how do you approach the person to convince them to be a whistleblower? If you just phone them up and say, hey, do you want to be a whistleblower? That seems odd, and you might instantly lose them. If you want to persuade someone, the best way to do it is to get them to believe it's their idea. So that's the plan. Paint Parrot was going to enter this guy's life, become friends with him, and then slowly plant the idea that whistleblowing is a great idea. 
So this means Paint Parrot needs to come up with a pretext, a backstory as to who he is, and then meet this guy. Paint Parrot builds an identity online. He creates a fake LinkedIn profile and business cards to look like he works at another company with a similar job as the guy he's targeting. In fact, he purposely made his profile a bit less accomplished as his target, so his target wouldn't feel intimidated. Paint Parrot begins memorizing his pretext. We'd get a load of, um, like, in the UK, like, pay-as-you-go SIM cards and just, like, second-hand phones, stick a pay-as-you-go SIM in it. You know, never really put any money on it unless we actually had to make a call from it. But half the time, you, know, you just give out that number for people to call you on it. A lot of these phones ended up with little little stickers on. So we put them in like a rubber case or whatever. But when you take the case off, they'd all have a little sticker on with various sort of like case names that like the code name would attribute to the project or case on the back of it. And I think at one point I had like six phones and I had to take the rubber cases off sometimes to remind myself of what phone was for what job and for what you know personality I am. <laughs> Do you like uh, stare in the mirror and call yourself by your fake name and like try on different accents and stuff? No, so generally this kind of thing, some people might argue this, but I always use my real first name because there's nothing worse than when someone shouts your name and you're not using your real name and you don't respond to it. You know, my name's not Dave and there's no point in me introducing myself to people as Dave because, you know, especially after doing this for a while and you know you are gonna have a few drinks with them at some point. You know, if they if you're talking to someone else and your target turns around to you and says Dave and you just completely ignore it because it's not your actual name, you know, it can it can land you in the in the ship. Or somebody coming into the bar and shouting your real name and then explain yourself. Exactly. Yeah if you're sitting there and you've told this guy your name's Dave and someone comes in going, hey Fred, Fred you know, Fred, why are you ignoring me, Fred? And you're like, fuck off. <laughs> you, know, just, you see that sort of stuff in the movies, don't you? It's, it's, yeah, it just doesn't work like that. So at this point, Paint Parrot has spent weeks learning about every aspect of his target. He has his own story cooked up along with fake business cards and a fake social media profile. And now he thinks it's time to make first contact. Paint Parrot knows this guy's routine is to go to the bar every Friday night with some co-workers, have a few drinks, and then a few hours later the co-workers leave and his wife comes and a few friends to have a few more drinks. So his plan is to somehow make first contact just as his co-workers leaving and the target's wife is showing up. Because at that point the guy would already have a few drinks in him and be comfortable with the territory and wouldn't have any of his work friends around. Paint Parrot knew this was going to be a long game. He didn't think he was just going to be able to meet this guy in a pub one night and convince him to be a whistleblower that same night. So his plan was just to become friends with him at first and gain trust. So Friday night comes. Paint Parrot and a few of his co-workers head to the pub where they know this guy will be. So, you know, I'm in this bar initially with a you know a couple of other colleagues just to kind of you know, be seen in the bar and not be that you know creepy weirdo that's on his own. Because that also doesn't work, by the way. <laughs> and um, once I feel like he's, you know, he's drunk enough, and the, you get to a point where the bar's busy, that you've actually got a queue to get served. You know, I kind of slip myself in front of him at the queue, and you know, I'm just on a fake phone call to whoever, you know, and I'm, I'm I'm talking about trying to get this place booked. So that's up and coming ski trip. I'm, you know, I'm right in front of the guy sort of he's literally like on my left shoulder kind of thing and I'm talking about loud enough that he can hear because obviously it's a bar 
and I'm starting to really moan and complain that I can't get this, get this place booked. You know, I'd heard great reviews about it. I'd been there another time a year, really wanted to do the run up to Christmas, which was like the dates that he does. You know, really wanted to do it this year because I've heard it's amazing. See, Paint Parrot knew so much information about his target. He knew that this guy booked that exact room just weeks earlier. So he's being all loud and rude on this phone call and putting on a show about not being able to get that room. Yeah, so I'm there obviously making a scene saying, oh, for fuck's sake, you're re- oh, I'm dying to take you guys there. You know, we, we, I can't get it booked. You know, I made all these promises. Yeah, I'm sorry I made these promises to you guys. You know, I'll, I'll try and figure it out. You know, it, it's supposed to be an amazing place. It's, you know, it's beautiful, it's stunning, the skiing's brilliant. You know, and I'm just saying it's loud enough that the guy can hear and I'm you know, re- subtly repeating the name of the villa a few times in this like fake phone call. So it kind of reestablishes it. You know, because you, you might hear it once in Boston, he might miss it. And so are you looking at this guy to see if he's like picking up on you or watching what he's doing? No, so, so I can, obviously I can, I'm aware he's still just behind my left shoulder. And I'm trying to sort of use like the, the drinks and the mirrors behind the bar and you know, whatever is there to try and catch a glimpse of his ref- reflection here and there. And slowly see, you know, he's, he's starting to twig. So I kind of you know, carry on talking about it. I can't book it. Uh, you know, I hang the phone up. I'm like, this is fucking bollocks kind of thing. And the guy's like, hey, man, you're all right. I'm like, oh, no, man, it's bullshit. I've been trying to book this place and it's already booked out. I promised my friends I was going to. I guess I was just too slow in doing it. You know, someone else swooped in and booked it. And he kind of said, oh, I heard you say, you know, so-and-so, like, the name of the place. And I was like, yeah, that's it. I was like, well, how do you know? He's like, oh, I'm the fucking asshole that booked it. <laughs> and it's, bang, there we are. You know, conversation started. The magic of this is the fact that Paint Parrot didn't approach the target. He got the target to break the ice. You want them to make the first conversation with you okay because people are inherently suspicious you know if i go up to this person go oh hey you're so and so here he'll generally get their guard up but if they overhear you talking about something in a bar or whatever that is so unique and tied into their lives yeah they almost feel especially after a couple of drinks obligated to say oh my god i know that or i know where that is i go there you know, and it, it's them then starting the conversation, which instantly makes them feel at ease. You kind of see what I mean? It's, it's, it's a psychological thing, I guess. So back at the bar, Paint Parrot got the guy to initiate conversation, but that's just the first step. Now he's got to capitalize on this opportunity. He's got this one shot to cement a friendship with this guy, or else he might lose months of research and work that he built up for this moment. Yeah, obviously I'm at the bar, I get served before him, it's obviously a queue, I'm like, look dude, do you want a drink kind of thing? And um, he's like, yeah, and we kind of talk, and at that point, you know, one of my you know, colleagues, that's one of my drinking buddies in the bar, kind of comes up, taps you on the shoulder and says, don't worry about me, we've got to go. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'll stay here on my own kind of thing and just finish this drink. And I'm talking to this guy, he's obviously like, don't be stupid, come and, come and sit with us. That's it now, I've now sort of, put myself into this guy's life. Paint Parrot got a seat at the table. He was in. And once he sat down, this is where all of that research on the target and his wife comes into play. Paint Parrot already knew their favorite bands, and he knew where they liked to go on vacation, what they liked to do. So he was finding ways to casually bring this up into conversations, to make himself look like the perfect friend they never knew existed. You're just trying to show that you're into the same things as they are. 
everyone wants someone that's into all the same stuff as they are, don't they? You could go anywhere and do anything with them. You know, you're going to have a great time. That's how you want them to, you want them to arrive at that kind of conclusion in their minds. Stay, chat, laugh, have a few drinks. You know, all of a sudden we've got so much in common. And after a few drinks, it's like, look, hey, I really should shoot. I've got, you know, I've got some stuff on, on my desk that I've got to try and get on top of over the weekend. It sucks to work over the weekend, but got to do it kind of thing. And you kind of hope that they come up with, look, do you want to grab a drink again sometime or whatever? If it feels like they're not going to do it, you know, I just went with the, look, there's my card. Give us a call if you fancy catching up or something like that. And I think within about 10 minutes of leaving, he'd dropped me a, you know, he'd dropped me a text and I says, hey man, it's good to meet you kind of thing, blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah, definitely, let's, let's grab a drink. Um, we're doing something, something or other like later on that, that week. He's like, you should totally come. Boom. Wow. I can't tell if I'm more impressed or terrified by this whole thing. To think that a stranger you meet in a public space might actually be part of a team of people who have spent months researching every part of your life with the specific goal of manipulating you and influencing you to do something, to make a major life decision. This is pretty crazy. Stay with us, because after the break, we'll hear how he plays the long game. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger podcast. Here's a clip from one of his episodes. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger show, where I speak with the infamous Firefest's Billy McFarland from inside federal prison, where he's serving six years for fraud and on the hook for $26 million in restitution. This call is from William McFarland. An inmate at a federal prison. Is this the new Billy that we're hearing, or are you the same Billy that tried to pull off the Fire Festival? When I think about the mistakes that were made and what happened, there's no way I can just describe it other than what the f*** was I thinking. I was wrong, and I hope now that I can in some small way make a positive impact. Once you knew that the festival wasn't going to go as planned, why didn't you call it off? So a lot of people don't know, but the decision to cancel the festival was made when I was told that three people had died at the event. Thankfully, no one was actually physically hurt in any way. But up until the last second, I believed incorrectly we could pull it off, and obviously I was wrong. We had something called the Urgent Daily Payments Document. Essentially, it was a list of payments that we had to make that day, or else the festival couldn't proceed. In the couple of months leading up to the event, it went from a couple thousand dollars a day to a few million dollars a day, where I had to wake up at 9 in the morning, find $3 million by noon, and then make the payments by 4. You had a big vision. I mean, it was huge. And you got so close to something great that everyone wanted to be a part of, and people still want to be a part of it. I have to wonder if there's going to be a Firefest version too. I assume you wouldn't call it that, but are you thinking of doing something similar? If there's anything that makes you want to create and build and do, it's being locked in a cage for months or years. Are you going to come? For more with Billy McFarland, including lessons learned on the inside and his plans once he's served the time he agrees he rightly deserves, check out episode 422 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Paint Parrot has completed step one of his mission. He has successfully initiated contact and made a connection with the target. Now he needs to slowly build up a sense of trust before he can say anything about whistleblowing. You've got to really get that trust with them before you can move on to the next step. So... Yeah, the next few weeks, I am the person he met in that bar for all intents and purposes and going for drinks. And slowly, you start building up more stuff about work. You know, and fortunately, this company had made the press you know, 
because the case had already started, you know, there was you know, a subpoena issued. So they were aware of it in their office and things like that. So you can slowly start building up about, oh my God, yeah, you work for so-and-so, don't you? I forgot. They, they, aren't they under like US investigation or something at the moment? He kind of builds that into conversation slowly. I kind of slowly, slowly brought it up and I think it was at a barbecue or something on a Sunday and I sort of mentioned it quietly to one side to him. <laughs> I have to laugh at this point because it's only been a couple of weeks and Paint Parrot is at his target's friend's house hanging out with the gang at a Sunday barbecue. I just imagine him wearing like a floral shirt and sunglasses, music playing, holding a beer and a hot dog. And that's him on the job on a Sunday afternoon. This is his career now. Because he wasn't at this barbecue just for fun. This was a moment for him to start closing in on his final goal. So we're there having like this barbecue and you know, I kind of collar him and his wife to one side. And I'm like, look, you know, this, this investigation, exactly. obviously, you know, it's a US investigation. I'm like, but is that going to affect you guys? You know, could you end up you know, being arrested and sent back to the States? Because that, you know, that would kind of suck kind of thing kind of just plant the seed and a little bit of fear on it just left it with him to, to simmer and the key thing is like mentioning it in front of his wife you know, if you if you can get the wife to worry then he's going to worry more because he's not just going to worry at work he's going to worry at home and that's kind of what you want and once you start again worried you know we met up i think it was like the next time we met up we were just having drinks the three of us and i kind of said look i i know like a lawyer who deals with all this kind of stuff and he deals with a lot of like American cases and things like that. Yeah, do you want me to have a, have a chat with him and see if I can find out if there's any way he can kind of help you out? And he's obviously like, yeah, yeah, please, if you could, if you can help us, that'd be amazing. So Paint Parrot has engineered this whole situation so that it looks like he's just helping out a friend in need. He hasn't said anything about whistleblowing. He's set it up so his target feels like he might be in trouble and fortunately his new friend Paint Parrot might be able to save him. At this point, it's time for Paint Parrot to make his final move. So obviously I, I go away. Yeah, I know exactly what we're gonna do because you know, it's all our plan at the end of the day. So I leave it like a few days, week, and I sort of get in touch with him. Like, hey, you know that thing we spoke about? I was like, I, I can introduce you to someone that can kind of help you out. And he's like, oh my God, brilliant. So we arrange a meeting at like a conference center, a set of like nice apartments in, in London. And I basically walk him up and introduce him to the you know, lawyer that deals directly with the, he's a British lawyer that deals directly with the DOJ on these cases. And I basically like make an instruction and sit there for about five minutes before just kind of leaving a room and leaving him to it. So as we know, that lawyer was there to help him blow the whistle on the company he worked for. And it must have been a bit of a shock for this guy to realize this wasn't just some friendly lawyer, but a person who knows this case inside and out. In that room, the lawyer explains to the target that the DOJ is looking for a whistleblower and promises that he will be granted full immunity from any of the company's wrongdoings if he works with them. The whistleblower agreed to cooperate. And just like that, months of research, planning, chasing, and deception was over. I think the next thing I know is I met up with him after that to give him burner phone and a few other bits of equipment. And obviously the whole dynamics changed. He's, he's kind of weirded out. I, what do, you do, do you ever tell this guy, like, look, I just did this because it was my job? No, I, I, I have no contact with him after. Yeah, once he kind of gets handed off and... Well, have you ghosted him, him? Like, did he text you? Like, bro, aren't we hanging out this weekend? You, you kind of... It, 
they get told, it all gets explained to him, you know, and he gets told, you know, not the ins and outs of my role, but, you know, but you won't have any more contact with this guy. Yeah, you knew him as whatever. Yeah, if you are to like bump into him in the street sometime or anything like that, just, you know, you never met him. You know, and it's kind of, that's that, you know, the phone number that was being used, that SIM card gets pulled out, snapped, and that's it. I wonder if he felt used at that point or what? Probably, but I mean, you know, at this point he's been, you know, he's doing a patriotic thing, you know, helping a US investigation. He's, you know, he's obviously had the carrot of the huge financial reward dangled in front of him. Yeah, so I, I think that's probably enough to calm most people's sort of doubts about it. You might be wondering where all these laws come from. In 2010, the United States passed a Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. This was just a little over a year after the 2008 financial crisis, when Wall Street executives and shady mortgage companies tanked the world economy. And so the Dodd-Frank Act was designed to stop something like that from ever happening again. And one part of that bill had to deal with corporate whistleblowers, the people who come forward when they see their organization are doing something wrong or illegal and tell the government. Whistleblowers had already received protection from the feds when they came forward, but this bill did something new. To encourage more people to flip on their companies and report wrongdoings, this new law said whenever a whistleblower comes forward to provide good information in a case that results in a fine of over a million dollars, the whistleblower is awarded a bounty of anywhere from 10 to 30% of that fine. Which, if you do the math, a 10% bounty on a million dollar fine is $100,000. But these fines are often way up in the tens of millions of dollars, meaning that whistleblowers could be in a position to make a lot of cash by telling on their companies. In this case, Paint Parrot said the DOJ was estimating the fine could be in the billions of dollars because of how much corruption this company was accused of. And 10% of $1 billion is $100 million. Paint Parrot said that in situations like this, the reward would actually get split three ways, between his British intelligence company he worked for, the American company that partnered with the DOJ, and the whistleblower himself. Even if this was split three ways, that's still life-changing money for everyone. Looking at the SEC's website, in October 2020, the SEC paid out the highest reward ever to a whistleblower, $114 million. And to date, they've paid out over $700 million to different whistleblowers. And that's why this company Paint Parrot worked for was in the business of bringing whistleblowers forward, because they wanted a chunk of this change. And that's one of the weirdest business models I've ever heard of. A company in the business of making whistleblowers? Yeah, and let's let's back up for a second. So this is the whole impetus of why your company, your agency, wanted to do this. is because they wanted to get cash in on this sort of bounty. And that's why they're like, let's, let's make the whistleblowers. Let's find the whistleblowers before they're even ready to whistleblow so that we can cash in on this bounty. Because that would be a lot for that company. Exactly. You know, that's retirement money for the guys that own the business. Granted, these things take years and years and years to pay out. You know, it's not a quick, it's not a quick sort of get rich quick scheme for them. I think only like 20% of them or something like that ever pay out. So it's, it kind of becomes a game of volume as well. The more whistleblowers or more cases they can find, the more chance they have of one of them paying out. Obviously, that's not something we say to the whistleblowers that you know, there's only a percentage chance that it's actually going to pay out. That's yeah, because then you lose that whole 
financial incentive for them. Yeah, these groups don't even know if the SEC will for sure pay out a bounty or not. So on one hand, more whistleblowers might come forward to protect from sketchy business practices, which is obviously good. But you've also got this weird secretive industry now of professional whistleblower chasers and groomers who are gathering information on people and convincing them to upend their lives, knowing there's a chance they won't receive anything from it. As for the specific whistleblower in this case, Paint Parrot says the SEC is still investigating this, so we don't know if he'll get his payout or not. So, so let's zoom out a little bit. So after this, you know, l- this seemed to be, uh, uh, it's, like you said, it's still ongoing, so these things take a long time, but it seemed to be a successful mission for this agency that you were working for, right? Let's go find a whistle. Let's go make a whistleblower. You found, made one, and did they say, okay, let's do it again? Yeah, so basically right after finishing that, destroyed that SIM card wrapped on a phone, and I probably took a weekend off, and before I knew it, it was like, ah, I actually did that one so well. We're starting to look at this company. <laughs> and kind of the same same process starts all over again. Wow. Paint Parrot kept on doing this sort of whistleblower cultivation with that company for a few more years until he decided to go his own way and start his own company, which does surveillance work. He says he's mainly given up on the corporate intelligence beat, And instead, he mostly focuses on penetration testing, social engineering, and red teaming. A big thank you to Paint Parrot for sharing his story with us. This one was wild, wasn't it? If you like this show, if it brings value to you, consider donating to it through Patreon. By directly supporting the show, it helps keep ads at a minimum. It helps get people to make the show, and it tells me you want more of it. So please visit patreon.com slash darknetdiaries and consider supporting the show. Thank you. The show is made by me, the public eye, Jack Recider. This episode was produced by the not-so-green Christian Green. Sound design and original music was created by the mesmerizing Andrew Merriweather. Editing helped this episode by the slow dancer, Damien. And our theme music is by the bouncy Breakmaster Cylinder. And even though I would sometimes get in trouble for reserving a conference room all day because I thought my cubicle was just too small, this is Darknet Diaries.